The State Department's modernizing program includes a new emphasis on data, what it calls data for diplomacy. And State gives annual awards to employees who advance the use of data to improve things. My next guest was recognized for how he identified challenges in collecting data about foreign assistance. He's the program advisor in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, Lenny Lantzman. Mr. Lantzman, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. First of all, tell us about the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs at State Department. It sounds like a conglomeration of several other agencies. What do you do there? The International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs Bureau at the U.S. Department of State is, I would call it, the center of gravity for international criminal justice reform around the world. We work with approximately $1.3 to $1.5 billion every year, congressionally appropriated, in, depending on how we count it, between 60 and up to 100 different countries. And the Bureau really focuses, you know, as its name implies, on an anti-crime and counter-narcotics mission. But over the years, and INL has actually been around since the late 70s when it started as narcotics affairs sections at embassies and shifted to be the INL Bureau, I think, in the early 90s. But in many ways, it is a place that thinks about what can we do to support our foreign criminal justice partners from national police agencies, national corrections agencies, and down to subnational agencies too. We work with certain country municipal police agencies, but we also work with organizations like public defender organizations. We work with the justice sector. We work with prosecutors. We essentially work across the entire spectrum of the criminal justice system to enable our foreign partners to be better at fighting crime in their jurisdictions so that Americans are less affected by those crimes. And we have a deep and heavy emphasis on a number of critically important things. I would sort of say at the very top, counter-narcotics, fighting fentanyl, the manufacture of precursors, the trafficking of precursor chemicals that are used to make fentanyl is a huge, huge issue for INL. There's a lot of effort both to support foreign partners, work with the interagency, our huge partners with Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, but also at the multilateral level. And so we work very closely with United Nations and other large multilateral bodies to develop standards, not only on fentanyl and precursors, but on a whole range of other areas. All right. And then you are cited for, and I'm going to read here, quote, pioneering work to identify data collection challenges inherent to foreign assistance programming for the Bureau. So translate that for us as to what you do there on the data front and how that supports the mission. I was humbled by the nomination and even more surprised by being awarded. I have to say that I've been with INL in some capacity or other. I started as a fellow for over a decade. I'm a comparative criminologist by trade. That's what my PhD work is in, in criminal justice. And so I've always brought into the Bureau a perspective of what is it that is going to enable our folks, and meaning the people who are actually managing the foreign assistance. And again, INL is a Bureau composed of people who are managing congressionally appropriated dollars to do programs in other countries to, again, make their criminal justice systems more effective at fighting crime. I work in a very unique office, and I would say our office is essentially the think tank for the INL Bureau. It's the Office of Knowledge management. And it's really the culture of our office that has enabled me to be talking to you now, right? And the culture of the place that I work in is very much thinking creatively about what kinds of tools can we create to, again, enable our folks within the U.S. government, within INL, to better design and implement effective and efficient programming using taxpayer dollars. 
some of the things that I work on and I think that I've been recognized for are thinking about, you know, we can go to a foreign partner and we can say we want your national police to be more effective at, let's say, fighting crime, or we want to reduce incidents of use of force by your police so that you can have better community relationships with communities that you need to work with so that they can give you tips so you can fight crime and so on. And that police agency can say, you know, we actually don't collect any data or information on our use of force incidents. And so one of the projects that I've worked on and I think that I've been recognized for is working with the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime on the development of international, not necessarily standards, because international standards go through, I would say, more of a um, probably like a treaty process to a certain degree where they're sort of formalized. Instead, I've worked with the UN on developing international guidelines on the kinds of data that law enforcement justice and corrections agencies should be collecting so that they know whether they're actually being effective. And the reason that's important for INL is that what that project is doing is creating the underlying architecture globally so that when we do turn to that national police agency and they tell us, you know, we don't actually collect use of force statistics on who our police officers interact with or the demographics of those people, for example. So we can't even tell you if use of force incidents sure. by our police occur more to certain minorities or ethnic groups more than others. These guidelines are ones that we will be able to point to and say, actually, here's the international you know, baseline for what you should be collecting. Let us help you develop that before we even work on developing sort of programs so that we can actually then develop programs and know whether they're being effective or not. We're speaking with Lenny Lantzman. He's program advisor in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs at the State Department and a recipient of a Data for Diplomacy Award. And I guess in many ways you can point to the United States, imperfect as people think our policing is and nothing is perfect, but we have a lot of data to show what the imperfections might be or where the shortfalls lie. So you've got a country that's a good example in this case, at least. That must be an advantage. I'm happy you mentioned that because that is exactly in many ways how INL thinks. But part of the job of INL and folks like me is to act as interpreters and translators of the U.S. experience and contextualize it for our foreign partners. One of the ways we do this is we work very closely with a number of state and local partners around the United States that we think are really great examples and potential implementers for some of our programs overseas. We also work very closely with essentially every federal agency that has a law enforcement or anti-crime function. We work with them and employ them as implementers for programs, as trainers, as models for reform and change. I will say that a good example even of the project that I just mentioned to you on developing these guidelines one of our critical and core partners was the Bureau of Justice Statistics under the Department of Justice. And we turned to them and said, look, we're working with the UN to develop these international guidelines. We want the good practices of the United States reflected in these. And they were one of the critical and sort of core reviewers of these guidelines to ensure that they were reflective, as you, as you know, Tom, of good practice in the United States at the federal level. I'll say one other thing. I don't look towards the U.S. as one model. We have, you know, depending on who you ask and what time of the day and who's counting, sure. over 17,000 different law enforcement agencies in the United States. We don't have one model. We have 17,000 models, right, plus the federal and at the state level. And that is both, you know, it's a curse, I would say, to a certain degree within the United States because it's so hard to create national standards that then all agencies implement. But for INL, 
it gives us this multiplicity of options to choose from to say, hey, this jurisdiction is doing a really great job on community policing. And let's talk to them and see what it is that they're doing that can be generalized and universal, right, to some of our foreign partners. And that's in many ways how INL works. We look to the United States as a just massive well of expertise, but our job is to translate and interpret and find that expertise that is going to be most relevant overseas. And it strikes me that what it is you impart to those foreign criminal justice operators might be in turn used by them to maybe spread the gospel of data-driven decision-making, data-driven program improvement in other areas of their own governments. That's also a great example. We work, again, in dozens of countries around the world, but we don't work with every single agency within that country. There are congressional limits, for example, on to which agencies and organizations our money can go. There are you know, issues of political will to say, hey, this part of the government really is reform-minded, and this part is not so reform-minded, so we're going to develop, for example, our programming to work with the reform-minded change agents, as we would call them, and use them as exemplars in that government of what you can do when you sort of really advance criminal justice reform, and let's say it's a prosecutor's agency, for example, focused on anti-corruption. It's not always successful. As you can imagine, foreign assistance you know, work and international criminal justice reform is really, really complex business. That's what my office exists to help the Bureau with. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I'm really just the tip of the iceberg of people in my office that work on these issues. I happen to be recognized, but I have colleagues that work on very complex data projects that I can barely myself understand that are thinking internally, right? Like I work developing these international guidelines. I have colleagues that work on creating internal data architecture so that INL can better understand the impact of our own programs, right? And how do we collect that information? How do we work with our implementers so that they're constantly updating information so that we can see, oh, the baseline has changed. We made a program to have X number of positive interactions between police and the community, and the implementer is showing that it's increased, right, more than we accounted for. What's driving that? What's making that program more effective, right? And the converse, too. We're not being successful, which is, frankly, much more important oftentimes to identify than being successful. Again, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my colleagues in my office that are working on really great and important data projects to help INL better understand its own results as well. And oversees any particular aha moments that have happened where somebody there gets it. That's a great question. I would say, actually, to answer that, I I would bring you back to the example that you mentioned, which is thinking about which of our partners are particularly good at what they do, and then using those partners to be the voice of change in the region. And I think that's actually, to me, the aha moments is when it's like, wow, these partners have gotten really good at doing their, let's say, national police reform. And instead of the United States then going to a country in the region saying, hey, let's recreate this here. Let's use those partners to be models of change, right? And so because they're going to speak, sometimes they speak the same language better than we would. And other times the language is not necessarily like linguistic, but it's the language of change and reform. So, for example, I know that we, INL Colombia, has sort of advanced huge amounts over the years. And Colombia is used as a model partner in other countries. And the Colombians will now go and will do capacity building and training in other parts of the region instead of us necessarily going. But they're imparting that same kind of change that we had worked with them over many years on. It sounds like you're really into your work, though. I love my job. 
I was recruited into INL as a PhD student years ago. And when I was recruited in, I just never honestly imagined that there was a place for some someone like me, like a comparative criminologist with a focus on port maritime security, which was my very initial focus in INL. But over the years, it became very clear like that, you know, there is a place for people like me and it's a great working environment. Um, I would say INL is also known as the I Never Leave Bureau, and I can count many colleagues who have stayed for a long time, just like me. It's a really, it really is a great place to work, and you're always working on something very interesting. Lenny Lanceman is program advisor from the Office of Knowledge Management in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, INL, at the State Department. He's a recipient of a Data for Diplomacy Award, and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty 
to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet 
Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.